Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here for our church. When I was 24 years old, the, the woman that I thought I was going to marry broke up with me and wouldn't tell me why. And it, the event was nothing short of devastating for me. I spent hours and days crying out to God, blaming and accusing things like, God, don't you care about me? Don't you care about my sadness or about my loneliness, my longing for companionship? God, don't you care about the next generation? I want to get married and have children and teach them to serve you. Don't you care about that as much as I do? This is a, a fairly dramatic example from my life, but I have lived this same pattern in thousands of small ways over the years, especially when I've tried to do the right thing or I've had a big vision for something, but things don't pan out as I had expected. And I'm tempted to feel like I'm the only one who cares. It's hard enough to feel like other people don't care as much as I do, but it's far worse when it feels like God doesn't care as much as I do. But the issue is normally that I just can't see what God is up to. So this morning, as we continue our study in, in the Gospel of Mark, if you have a church Bible, we're going to be on page 545 at the end of Mark chapter 4. My main point this morning is that Jesus cares about your crises and he will go to any length to subdue you completely for his service. He cares about your crises and he will go to any length, even through your crises, to subdue you completely for his service. In Mark, where we are in chapter 4, we're just getting off a series of parables that Jesus spoke, some stories that he told to explain how the kingdom of God works. And in the midst of those stories, he praises his disciples for being given the secret of the kingdom of God. And he warns his disciples to keep hearing his word, lest they lose what they have. And it's with that having just happened... Up through verse 34, Mark then launches into a series of snapshots designed to show us the difference between those who hear and believe on the one hand and those who don't hear and don't believe on the other hand. Mark's, uh, among the gospel writers, Mark's gospel is a gospel of action and his, his favorite method to make a point is to show us. He often doesn't tell us straight out what he's trying to say. He wants to show us. And so he shows us these episodes so we can see some who hear and believe, some who don't hear and don't believe. And just as the parables earlier in chapter 4, they exposed where people's hearts are before the Lord. So now this series of stories, which are filled with people's crises, they will expose whether the people around Jesus really want to have a king who cares. And these stories will expose us. Do you want a king who cares? Are you willing to pay the cost of having such a king? Because he has a price. And so we will see in this passage 
on your outlines, you can see that first we will see that a king who cares isn't threatened by your crisis. It's the end of chapter 4, and then at the beginning of chapter 5, we'll see that a king who cares wants nothing less than all of you. Let's pray and ask his help to see how much he cares. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to show us you so that we might know you. And Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit and grant us understanding and insight that we might see you for who you are, not for who we want you to be. And Lord, please help us to know you and to draw nearer to you this morning that we might honor you and serve your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, a king who cares isn't threatened by your crisis. Mark chapter 4, I'm going to start at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. This is Jesus said that. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? A king who cares isn't threatened by your crisis. Notice in verse 35 how this is the same day, on that day, This is the day that Jesus spoke all the parables earlier in the chapter. And if you remember, he had been speaking to the crowds from a boat. The crowds were pressing in so tightly and he wanted to be able to teach them. So he got in a boat with his disciples and they went out from the shore just a little bit so that everyone could see him and the sound would be projected better. And and he taught all these parables. So on that day as evening comes, he, he decides that it's time to leave. Once again, leaving the crowd behind, they don't even go back to the shore. They just take right off. It says, verse 36, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And in verse 37, a great windstorm begins filling up the boat. And we must remember that we have at least four professional fishermen on board. And so the the level of their panic here in verse 38 shows us that this great windstorm is truly ferocious if it freaks out the professionals. But in verse 38, Jesus is in the stern asleep on the cushion and they wake him up with a question that is not really a question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This is the kind of question that a prosecuting attorney would ask. Isn't it true that you assaulted my client on November the 22nd? This question is really a statement. 
what they are saying is, Jesus, you don't care that we are perishing. Think about it. What do they expect of him? While he is fast asleep, with the storm arising and the waves breaking and the boat filling, probably they want him to help them bail water out, maybe to man the ropes, do something like everybody else is doing. So verse 39, he wakes up, he rebukes the wind, and he speaks to the sea. Now, who does that? That's right, God. This is not, I bet, what they are expecting. With just a few words, the wind ceases and everything becomes calm. Perhaps they have passages from the scriptures that they knew going through their heads at this point. Like probably the first one that would come to my mind would be from Psalm 107, verses 23 to 31, which says this, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So in Mark 4, verse 41, when the disciples ask themselves, who then is this? Mark, the author, leaves us with no doubt. Jesus does what only the Lord can do. Jesus is the Lord Almighty, the God of heaven and earth, the one who speaks and it is done. The main point of the book of Mark is that Jesus is the true king, the son of God. And so this passage helps to advance that main idea by showing us that as God's authorized king, of course Jesus cares about his people who are perishing. Of course he cares. But when he cares, he doesn't just jump in to help. He doesn't start bailing water or manning the ropes. Sometimes, because he cares, he might be sleeping. And this could be to show you that this crisis isn't as big a deal as you think it is. At other times, he shows that he cares by doing the impossible, which actually I think is even more terrifying than if he didn't care at all. Because how could you ever get close to someone whom the wind and the sea obey. This is like hugging the typhoon. How do you know he won't whip the storm back up? And how could you ever predict what he will do to you or through you? But Mark's chief message here is is not only about who Jesus is, although that's a big part of it, that Jesus is the Lord whom the wind and the sea obey. But 
In verse 40, Jesus himself draws attention to the disciples' response. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus sets up this distinction between fear and faith. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? And this distinction that starts here will carry through the beginning of chapter 6, this whole next section where Jesus highlights what he expects of his followers. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? How does this apply for us? Here's the application here. Believe the good news. Believe the good news. And the good news here is that this king isn't threatened by our crises. Believe that. Because when your life starts going down the tubes and it seems like God is sleeping, you may be tempted to conclude that God doesn't care. But the king who cares about you, he won't panic. He won't be threatened by that which threatens you. Let me, let me illustrate this. Uh, a few years ago, Aaron and I uh, went to some counseling with some of our children who have struggled with uh, intense fear. And we've been learning how to, how to help them and how to, how to be better help and not get in the way with that. And one of the things that we learned that was super helpful was the counselor helped us to learn that when, when there's panic going on on the part of the child, it's probably not best at that point to just say, it's really not a big deal. Here's the truth. It's not a big deal. Let's do this. Because the more we did that, the more we realized, and the counselor helped us to see, we were actually degrading trust with our children because we were leading them to believe that we would never understand how bad their situations were. But you see, here's the thing, is that that's important for what we had to learn was to reflect back to them the intensity of their emotion, to at least let them know that we can see that this is a big deal to them. But the reason why that's so important is because I am not all-powerful. I cannot speak a word and fix the problem. So if I could, then I could say your panic is no big deal. You see, it's important for me to reflect that anxiety, but but in many ways, it's different for Jesus. His failure to freak out is not a failure to care. And there are times in the Gospels when Jesus enters into the suffering of people and he empathizes with them, such as when he weeps at the grave of Lazarus in John chapter 11. But there are other times when he refuses to validate people's fear. And so, by all means, cry out to him, seek him for help, but believe the good news that he is not threatened by your crisis. Know that he is not as scared as you are. He's neither wondering about the future nor calculating the risk involved in this situation. This king will help you in his own timing with his own wisdom. and He will exert his power for what is best not merely for what is convenient. And so as we approach Thanksgiving this week, let, let us give thanks for this king and for what he has done and what he is doing in our lives. We have much to be thankful for uh, because when he does what's best and not just what's convenient, he, 
He, he's doing this because it's in your best interest. He will make you into something special. He will have his way with you. And children, one of the things God has done is he's given you your parents to help care for you. And sometimes your parents might not freak out with you when things don't seem like they're going so well, but your parents are a real gift to you to help you to know Jesus. Jesus will have his way with us. And that leads us into the second point, that a king who cares wants nothing less than all of you. This next episode takes place in, in two parts. So first I'll read part one, uh, verses one through 13 of chapter five. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. So in verse 1, they finally get to the other side of the sea. They had left from the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, which is in northern Israel, and they came in on the southeast side here to the land of the Gerasenes, verse 1, which is not a Jewish region. These are non-Jews living here. The main evidence of this is that uh, they are herding pigs nearby, and as far as we know from the first century, Jews would never have done that. They considered pigs to be... Uh, unclean animals that they weren't able to deal with. And in verse 2, as soon as he steps out of the boat, immediately a man meets him. Verses 3 to 6, Mark moves back and he gives us some background on this man up before where he runs up to Jesus. In verse 3, we're told that he lived among the tombs, which associates him with dead people. We're told that nobody could bind him anymore not even with chains or with shackles. He would break both. We're told all these things twice, verses 3 and 5. In verse 4, we're told for a second time that no one had the strength to subdue him. Verse 5, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So he's the demons are causing him to harm himself. In verse 6, he saw Jesus and he ran and fell down before him. This, the point is that, that Mark wants, he, he paints this picture, all these details, to show us that this man is unsubduable, he is out of control, and he is self-destructive. And so much so that he is as good as dead. 
living among the tombs. He has this interaction with Jesus. In verse 7, just like other unclean spirits we've seen earlier in Mark, he knows Jesus' identity. You are son of the Most High God. And also like other demons, he is other unclean spirits. He is begging Jesus not to torment him because Jesus was commanding him to come out, verse 8. Now, in, in verse 10, they beg Jesus not to send them out of the country uh, because there is some kind of opportunity for them here in this region where they can do damage and cause harm, that it would be torment for them to be kicked out of the country. They don't want to lose that opportunity. And so even in 11 and 12, they beg further permission to enter this herd of pigs. In verse 13, when Jesus grants permission, the spirits show what they're really about. All they want is to ravage and destroy. And maybe they've stretched it out with this guy night after day after day after day after day, where he's been harming himself and crying out and cutting himself with stones. All they want is to ravage and destroy. And they find this herd of pigs to be easy prey. And so they immediately make the pigs rush down the bank into the sea and they drown in the sea. Because that's what unclean spirits do. They destroy things. They harm, they ravage. What's going on here? Remember, the main idea in the book of Mark is that Jesus is God's authorized king. And in this first half of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, we're seeing his credentials. What makes him authorized? In in ancient times, one important role of a king was to go out and do battle against your people's enemies. And this scene shows us Jesus waging war as God's king. And we see Mark, in a way, unlike some of the other gospel writers, Mark pulls back the curtain to show us the real battle that's going on. Because in most of the other gospels, it it seems like the main enemies that Jesus has to deal with are the scribes and the Pharisees. And they are certainly present in Mark, but Mark is constantly showing us Even behind the scribes and the Pharisees, there's this spiritual warfare going on, and Jesus is constantly waging war against these unclean spirits and against the power of Satan. And so Jesus is waging war. In verse 9, with this dialogue about Jesus asks the demon for, for his name, and he says, My name is Legion, for we are many. Legion is a Roman military term for a company of troops, usually around 6,000 troops. And these spirits are waging a war on the people of this region, especially against the man they inhabit. They are deriving pleasure from his pain and from his self-destruction. And so Jesus exerts himself as the divine conqueror. He wipes out a legion of troops with a word, just like he did with the storm in the last the last scene. Jesus has his way with them. He is undoing the devastation. He is subduing the unsubduable. He is virtually raising the dead. Mark wants to show us that there is nothing that Jesus cannot do. Do you believe it? How does this apply for us? Friends, please, please lay aside your excuses. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if, if you are not, you would not claim yourself to be a follower of Christ, 
why not begin following him today? He can take care of whatever has held you back. Do you wonder how you could ever be forgiven for what you've done? Or perhaps do you feel trapped in your life, in your relationships, in your patterns of behavior? You have no idea how to get out. Maybe you've even been hurt very deeply by others, maybe even by some who claim to follow Jesus. And you don't know how to reconcile these things with what the Bible says about a God who is all-powerful and all-good. And I understand these issues are complex. But Jesus can subdue the unsubduable. And if you're here this morning and you already know Christ and you claim to follow him, please lay aside your excuses. Because with the Spirit of Christ living in you, you have all of his power at your fingertips to help you change. Whether you struggle with coarse joking or foul language or isolationism or neediness or explosive anger or overeating or sexual immorality, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be that way. Christ in you is your hope of glory. And I I understand that these issues are complex. But Jesus can subdue the unsubduable. And he wants nothing less than all of you. We move into the second part of this story here. Jesus' interaction with this demon-possessed man, it becomes a parable of his dealings with all people. And this should terrify us because Jesus wants everything. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So the herdsmen flee in verse 14. They tell everyone what happened. One time in verse 14. In verse 15, the townspeople come back and they see this demon-possessed man sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Something that they haven't ever seen before. And in verse 16, they don't believe it, so they ask for the story a second time. And they're told the whole story again. And Jesus has, once again, done the impossible. He has subdued the unsubduable. The man whom no one could subdue, who was running around, crying aloud, cutting himself with stones, he's now sitting clothed in his right mind. And so what will they do about it? Verse 17. They beg Jesus to depart their region. Now this is funny because the demons had begged Jesus not to send them out of the region. 
And so he permitted them to stay. And now the result of that is that though he let the demons stay, now he must go. But you can't come face to face with Jesus and go away unchanged. And you can't experience Jesus' transformation of your life without feeling at least a little threatened by it. Because if Jesus wants all of me, if Jesus will produce this total transformation in this demon-possessed man, and he's going to do that to me too, it means I can't hide from him. It means I can't go to church and do my duty and then go back to my life. I can't have what I want, when I want, how I want, and I can't protect what is most precious to me. Either I will have to deal with those things or Jesus will have to go. Because Jesus will find these things that I value and he will destroy them so that I have nothing left but him. And this scares me because it goes against everything I hold dear. It usually goes against our expectations. Because when Jesus does this to you, the people who know you will worry that you have changed. And I had some high school friends who, a few years later while I was in college, they said, man, you've changed. And they meant that as an insult. I, my response was, yeah, and you haven't changed. Please. Let's grow up. But people will worry that you have changed. They will worry that you no longer play by their rules. They might wonder if you have joined a cult because nothing is sacred anymore in your life except Jesus. I've had extended family members who have been very clear with me about their expectations that nothing is more important than family. And when family calls upon me, I must drop everything and come running. It doesn't matter what my job is or what my role is in the church. It terrifies these people to see that Jesus might place a calling on me that supersedes any calling from my family. And it even terrifies me when I think about the things that Jesus wants to subdue. How does this apply for us? Friends, come follow Jesus. Come and follow Jesus. It comes with unexpected twists and turns, but he is worth whatever we can give. He is worth everything because he wants to bring an end to our self-destruction. See, all those things that we love and we hold on to is because we think they give us life. Really, it's like cutting ourselves with stones. We, they, they destroy us, and Jesus wants to subdue that. In verse 18, the demon-possessed man begs Jesus to let him to let this man be with Jesus. And it's really interesting, in verse 19, Jesus does not permit him. So he will let demons have their request, but he won't let this guy have his request, who wants to be with Jesus. But Jesus gives him a mission, and this guy gets it. He understands the mission. You see, in verse 19, Jesus says, Go tell your friends what the Lord has done for you. And verse 20 says, he went to his friends and told them what Jesus had done for him. You see, this guy understands that Jesus is the Lord. That Jesus is the God of heaven and earth. 
that his voice has an authority that no other voice has. And his promises have an inherent comfort that we can find nowhere else. Friends, come follow this Jesus with us. Let us serve him together, giving up all that he calls us to give up and trusting him to do the impossible. Because this king, he cares. And because he cares, he is not threatened by our crises and he uses our crises to draw us to him because he wants nothing less than all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending this Jesus who cares so much for us that though he is not threatened by our crises, yet he enters into them and uh, you, you sent him to suffer and to die so that we might be made right with you. Lord, please help us to believe this good news that Jesus cares, that he's not threatened by our problems and that he wants all of us and that it's worth it to end the self-destruction. Lord, please help us not to hide, help us to lay aside our excuses, and help us to give ourselves fully and completely to your service in your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.